Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Jeff Holden, Uber's Chief Product Officer, about the company's ambitious plans to bring flying cars to our streets. This week, we talked to a startup that uses blockchain technology to reduce the risk of fraud and has played a leading role in helping curb the trade in conflict diamonds. The internet as we know it is the fundamental economic instrument of our time. And yet the internet has no embedded trust layer, no embedded ownership layer. And this is what the blockchain fabric is able to bring. That was Leanne Kemp, who came to the FT studio to talk to me about her company, Everledger, which uses blockchain technology to track the provenance of assets from diamonds to fine wines. We've had several emails from listeners asking us about how blockchain can be applied in real life. And you've built your whole business on blockchain. So I wondered if you could tell us very briefly about how you are using blockchain in the real world. Absolutely. Everledger started here in April of 2015, and we recognized that blockchain as an emerging technology had use beyond the payment mechanisms that it was born out of with Bitcoin. So we began to think about how we could apply this across supply chains and enable transparency for the once opaque. So we built a digital global ledger and we embarked upon a journey to track and trace diamonds from the source of the mine to the market using not only blockchain, but an emerging technology stack, which is really a symphony of technologies, blockchain, smart contracts, machine vision, and a cognitive layer to bring a compliance level to the stack. Now, we're going to come back to all of that, but I'd like to start with asking you about your personal background. I mean, this is not the first business you've founded. I believe you founded three previously in Australia. Could you tell us a bit about those and how you have ended up doing what you're doing now? Somebody asked me just the other day, what was the lightning bolt moment that created Everledger? And I had to say to them, actually, I feel like it's a midlife crisis. To be honest with you, the evolution and the start of Everledger really came out from a patchwork quilt of experience. So in the mid-90s, I worked in RFID, which is radio frequency identification. And I've always been a technologist. So I've had my hands dirty in software engineering for the better part of 20 years of my experience. So from the mid-90s through to 2005, I worked heavily on RFID in track and trace technologies and the identity platform in Australia. And that company I subsequently sold. And then I moved into how we were able to handle a significance of big data in digital provenance. So that was the third company I started. And a company in the middle, which actually became quite important, was when we were able to support at an enterprise level property valuation platform. So the binding of all of that experience together gave me the technical foundations to do what I'm doing today. But the last company I sold, which I co-founded, we managed to exit to an ASX-listed company on the stock exchange for $15 million. And we were quite proud of that moment. And then I reinvested a part of that money into a jewellery company in Australia in 2007. So that's given me now the better part of 10 years' experience at the point of jewellery, insurance, and high-tech disruptive technology. All of those businesses were in Australia, were they? They've been based and founded in Australia, but certainly the last company has operational centres in New Zealand and in the UK. How did you end up founding Everledger in London? 
I was in London with a backpack really thinking about where would I need to be in the world if I wanted to do something quite spectacular. And so I came to London because of two reasons. Firstly, it's clearly the epicentre of financial services and particularly being the birthplace of Lloyd's, it was an exploratory view for me to be able to come in here and understand that. And secondly, it's very clear that London enables me to have a trampoline to global networks, something that were not easily afforded in Australia. Could you tell us exactly how your technology works? So how do you authenticate every step in the kind of diamond chain? Firstly, we can't do this by ourselves. We see ourselves as the intel inside of industry, working with these leading edge technologies that have complete disruptive power, but we want to be able to apply them to solve problems that are not able to be solved with the current ways of either doing business or implementing technology. So secondly, we're able to recognise where there are important steps of identity and authentication in the pipeline. And it's important that we become a part of that embedded process. Now, luckily, our industry, the diamond industry, has relatively controlled processes. We're not a regulated market, but we do have controlled processes and we are enabled by certain levels of science, which have been around for quite some time. And parts of that pipeline have been quite expensive in terms of capex with these machines. And we've seen new adaptive technologies come into the market, for example, machine vision, cognitive computing, and of course, smart contracts. So we were able to think about how we could take the provenance steps or the bus stops of the diamond as it travels through from the point of the mine to the exporting country to the importing country and then into the retail network and how we were able to place or embed technology across those existing processes. Right. But just to be clear, every diamond within this process has its own unique thumbprint. So this is interesting. You know, $15 billion of diamonds are mined on an annual basis. And for the most part, about 70% of the world's diamonds that are mined are actually used for industrial grade purposes. It's only a small percent of diamonds that eventuate into the luxury goods space. But of course, as diamonds are formed within the crust of the earth, they're formed with a certain pattern of DNA, not dissimilar to a human being. You can tell how every diamond is unique. Most definitely. You can tell by digitising the diamond, by high-definition photographs, by mapping the inclusions of the stone. And there's also some advantage in even thinking about how the crystal lattice effect is also able to be mapped. Right. Now, can you explain how is blockchain helping this process? Because, I mean, the whole authentication and certification process is happening anyway. So how is blockchain facilitating the provenance question? So the first thing we've recognised is that the technology is a network technology. It relies upon a set of business participants to agree upon a consensus of opinion based on an expert or machines to be able to affect a transaction to be written. Now, in the diamond industry, we have a series of siloed data sets and those data sets are only really shared through one single punching a hole through a membrane. But if you're able to orchestrate a network technology that enables transparency as well as respecting confidentiality, then you're able to bring together the symphony of that network, the business transactions, the object layer, and then of course the customer layer. And bringing those three layers together enables us to bring transparency through the pipeline. Right. And who are your customers? Our customers actually stem from various different sources of the diamond's journey. In terms of the diamond industry, we recognise that there is an absolute importance 
in the stage gate processes. So those either experts in market or those participants on the pipeline that have either handled the stone or have had some responsibility in equating its identity. And so diamond graders, certificate houses, and even bourses and exchanges are an extremely important part to the provenance chain. And of course, as a part of our industry, we have a consolidation at a geolocation level. So we know that the majority of world's diamonds are still mined in the countries of Africa and in Canada and some in in Australia, that the predominant trading of diamonds is occurring in Antwerp, uh, Israel, India, Dubai. And we know, of course, the retail outlets in the States and New York, Canada, and our love of luxury certainly isn't going away. One of the issues that you've discussed in the past is the possibility of creating a secondary or a derivatives market off the diamond industry now that there is more certainty about the provenance of those diamonds. Can you tell us how that is working? If you analyse diamonds, as Bain did in their 2013 and 14 reports, diamonds outperform gold, platinum, palladium and silver in terms of its returns. So it's very clear that the research is there to be able to support what could be a futures market in diamonds. And now we're already seeing activity in Singapore and more recently discussions in Russia. We have seen a number of potential inhibitors to that futures market being born. In fact, it was only in the last six months that we've started to see heightened discussion of this topic in the marketplace. And really two or three things are prohibitive. The first thing is you need to have a baseline of liquidity, transparency, and then ensuring that there's a fungibility to the object or to the baseline of trade. And we're able to point now to the Singapore Diamond Investment Exchange, which was created only in 2017. And their entire focus is to realise the potential of the investment in diamonds. So I actually think that the reality is upon its way and that we are only potentially one very small part of that futures market, but it's likely that it could be on one part of the bedrock foundation of technology that we're able to help provide. Now, there was a huge controversy surrounding the whole issue of blood diamonds a decade or so ago. How is your technology helping to address that issue? Well, I think that the diamond industry should be applauded for the work that it did, and it really came out of you know the United Nations forming the Kimberley process in the year 2000, and that has represented a validation step of processes 81 countries came together, operating over 54 offices. The Kimberley members, as they came together, have really worked very hard to ensure that the protocols of those standards have been put in place. But it's really still operating on a baseline of paper certification. And each country holds masters, which are just as important as printing the Benjamin Franklin $100 bill. And some of these masters are stored in filing cabinets in offices around the world. Now, we have seen instances in open marketplaces such as Alibaba that was reported recently in the press where we've had some of those paper certifications become document tampered or mixed in terms of its use back to synthetic stones. Now, there is a series of discussions in place around the warranty process, which is the promise or the declaration that underpins the Kimberley process. Should that be extended to support human rights abuses? Uh, But at the moment, it's really focused on the ethical supply chain of the industry. And we understand that the Kimberley certificates need to marry the... 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Invoices of trade, as well as the identity of those trading networks. So bringing together, as I said before, know your object, know your transaction, and know your customer. And this is exactly what we're able to do, to bring transparency to those three layers. Right. So some NGOs have criticised the process as being quite leaky. But as far as I understand it from what you're saying, as long as the diamonds get into the certification process, then you are providing an extra level of security that is not possible on kind of paper-based systems. I think that with a 130-year-old industry that's been predicated on trust, a gentleman's handshake, a chit of paper to pay and a promise, that what we're seeing now is that that same human element can be transformed into a digital set of platforms. The industry now is going through a glacial melt, so they can't rely upon all of the old boys' handshakes and old school ties. They're at the mercy of financial services now, so they have to form transparency. Otherwise, banks aren't going to lend to them, not giving them bank accounts. Insurance companies aren't going to deal with them. You know, there are certain countries that have zero tolerance for it. And also some of the larger families, like the Oppenheimer family, sold out. So we're seeing this kind of glacial melt and the technology we have just kind of feels like resin in the cracks. So I think there's a recognition that the technology has a fundamental bedrock position in terms of international trade, not just only for the diamond industry, but for other commodities around the world. But I must say that the diamond industry is the perfect place industry to do this. But because it's a network technology, we've seen another a set of initiatives being born in financial services and banks being one of them, a consortium of 70 banks and financial institutions coming together to try and understand and educate and use this network technology. Banks are still trying to understand how they're able to transact together. The diamond industry already has that symphony of respect, trust and transactional trade going on. But what they're lacking is the technology tools. And so we're bringing them the very best of those tools. Financial services, they have to unwind 40 years of technical legacy to even entertain any new emerging technology stack. Our industry purely has to educate themselves and then agree upon a consensus mechanism to adopt it and deploy it to solve problems that are not able to be solved with the current ways of working today. So you think blockchain in a way can be applied to solving new problems as opposed to kind of replacing old systems to solve old problems? I think any disruptive and emerging technology should be applied in that way. It should be applied with a full consciousness of mind that, you know, social change is upon us. And certainly the internet as we know it is the fundamental economic instrument of our time. And yet... The internet has no embedded trust layer, no embedded ownership layer, and this is what the blockchain fabric is able to bring. 
how can you apply your technologies to other areas? I mean, it's not just diamonds that you're looking at. I believe you're investigating how this could be applied to fine wines or art or watches. What are the challenges of those sectors? I think there's a current theme in a number of sections of the market, and particularly where we've been interested is in anti-counterfeit measures where there's something in the marriage of provenance and certification to ensure authenticity, and that if you can marry the triangulation of that together, then there's an interesting transformation of value. And on top of that, we can build entirely new financial products. We are really interested in rising asset classes, things that we see where provenance, certification and authenticity comes together. So we began thinking about art, wine, watches, classic cars, antiquities, all of these items that are not inherently internet connected. There's a lot of tricks, though, because you have to get to the forensic level of identity. I'm really intrigued by how you can authenticate wine, because I can understand how you may be able to authenticate the wine bottle. But how do you authenticate the wine inside the bottle? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a number of experts in market, and we've been very fortunate that we caught the attention of the Sherlock Holmes of wine. Her name is Maureen Downey. She's based in America, and she was one of the key expert witnesses in the FBI investigation into the biggest wine fraudster the world had seen. His name was Rudy Corniwan. He was subsequently convicted in 2013. And we worked closely with her over an eight-month period with Forensic Identity, And we understood where the industry is using leading edge identification methods, not only just about the bottle, but the label, the capsule or the cork, and also the fill. And we've been able to put together all of those forensic identity pieces as a part of the blockchain platform. And we worked very closely with her in terms of making sure that that was a robust forensic identity platform. And from there, there are a number of things that can come out of it. So firstly, it's about then understanding the chain of provenance of wines and which wines from certain producers in Bordeaux or in certain regions of France where we're able to identify those on small batch lot production schemes. So we're not talking about identifying wine that potentially you and I could afford, but certainly wines on small batch lots that would end up potentially running themselves into the investment networks. And authentication is not then just an important part to who owns it, but also to banks and insurers that have effectively bearing the risk. I remember talking to a French vigneron who told me that more bottles of Chateau Latour had been sold in China than had ever been produced in the history of Chateau Latour, which suggested there was a bit of an issue of provenance on that. There's a massive problem. We recognise that there is a part of the market in relation to insurance fraud, which is in the billions. And then staggeringly, when we start to look at counterfeit, it's in the trillions. So now we understand that if we can start to solve a subset of a large global problem, then we're well on our way in making just a very small, small, small step towards changing the way ethical trade is done across the world. And where are you at Everledger in this process? I mean, how ambitious are you? Which markets are you going to go after? Somebody said to me the other day, where are you at? And I said, I'm having white knuckle moments. And they said, what does that mean? I said, I feel like I've got two hands on the steering wheel and I'm just looking down at my hands and just don't want to let go. We've had a rapid uptake. I mean, we are a startup. We're two years old, two years and one month. But in that very short period of time, we're already in scale up. You know, we're 28 staff, we're generating revenue, we have four operational offices around the world in Australia, Singapore, London and New York. 
we've managed to build an enterprise level technology stack that not only can support the diamond industry, but has already been proven to be an extensible platform to look at other objects of value. And in some realms, we've also been asked to white label our product in areas that have been quite surprising to us. So other counterfeit areas that we would not have thought we would be able to help solve or even be asked to even consider. And on this white knuckle ride, are you driving towards another funding round or an IPO? We've been very fortunate in that we are generating revenue, so we're not at the mercy of time in terms of the decision that we need to make. We're very selective in how we want to go about those strategic partnerships. And so our corporate strategic partnerships have actually embedded significant value within Everledger already. And those three I can name quite proudly is IBM, SAP Ariba, and MasterCard. We did run a very light investment round. And more recently, we're happy to name some of those investors. One of them is Bloomberg Beta, which is their corporate investment arm, and Fenbushi Capital out of Japan. We will look to move to a more formalized Series A round, but we're in no rush to do that. We want to be sure that we've embedded value across a number of supply chains, that we have a recurring and a robust revenue model, particularly if I'm responsible for handling other people's money as a part of the investment. And we want to be sure that this technology, as it becomes mature, that we're able to make the impact that we've set out to achieve. Final question. There's clearly a huge amount of hype around the whole blockchain phenomenon, but there's also growing scepticism about how it can be applied. From what you're saying, it's one of the technological tools that you can apply. It's not necessarily the most efficient or necessarily the best technology in many circumstances. So how do you think it fits into this whole suite of technologies that you've been describing? I think it's a fascinating time to be as old as I am and have had the experience technically that I have had. You know, it's very clear to me that we're at the thrust of a change in pace in the world, that consumers as well for the very first time, are really voicing and showing the movement of their feet towards ethics, towards transparency, towards trust. And this is really giving rise to a number of new consumer traits. Now, on the second backdrop of that, we're starting to see the convergence of exponential technologies being born. So we've had already blockchain, smart contracts, cognitive computing, machine vision, all of these technologies coming together and converging at this point in time is a fantastic time to be alive. There's a lot of scary conversations to be had about whether we are programming ourselves out of humanity and is it true that we will literally be living on Mars within 2030. But the reality is I think it's an exciting time to be in the shoes of a startup to be able to ride multiple wild horses of technology, but just have the maturity, the patience and the humility to really put together the right purpose of a company. And so I was appointed as a director on the World Trade Board and really thinking about if I'm going to be doing this and it's my last startup. Why is it your last startup? Well, it's a good question because I think I could do another, but I think this one actually has significant meaning. So if I had to ask myself, where would I have spent the last 10 years and where can I spend the next 10 years, then it's doing what I'm doing now, taking the most transformative technologies of our time at a point where it's converging and applying to something that is effectively the blind spot of humanity. And if we can do that, 
we have many, many, many companies that can help us along this journey. So um, it's beyond money now. It's actually about touching a million lives for the right reasons, not just for the financial gain of those reasons. That's been a great talk. Thank you so much, Leanne. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been great to be here. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.